only run their mouth. Mouth don't throw punches. Punches throw punches. The fight happens in the ring. Are you ready, champ? Like, like I cannot not be ready, right? Like, I ain't been doing my job for eight to ten weeks, right? Okay, okay. Like, I got here overnight, right? What up, what up, fight fans? Welcome back to episode 156 of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast here on TheBoxingRant.com. I'm Kenny Keith, and I'm joined, as always, by Vince Cummings. What up, Vin? What's going on, brother? We got the uh, Ukrainian invasion to D.C. this week. Hey, I heard that uh, uh, last night you made a little scouting reconnaissance mission down to MGM National Harbor and played in a little World Series of Poker qualifier. Yeah, did not do too well in the qualifier. Let's just, <laughs> let's just say that and uh, walked out about $400 lighter in the pocket at the end of the day. But let me tell you, that place is fucking top notch, man. Awesome. Everything. Awesome. And we have a special guest today that will be there next week. Um, amongst the amenities of the new MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. We got the preview of Lomachenko versus Sosa on episode 156, and Oleksandr Usyk makes an appearance. But before we get to our special guest, just a reminder, drop by theboxingrant.com today. Subscribe on iTunes, Spreaker, and Google Play, and of course, subscribe to the Boxing Rant YouTube channel. So it's been a few episodes but we are graced by the return of the co-host of the three knockdown rule with Mario Lopez, the next round podcast with Gabe Montoya, UCN Live's 10 count. And now just watch the debut episode of Between the Ropes, Ring Magazine presents Between the Ropes. Good stuff. With Doug Fisher and his co-host from UCN Live, Steve Kim. Welcome back to the Tale of the Tape. Boys, glad to join you. We got a big event here at the MGM. I'm sure you just heard listening in in the intro. Vin uh, sat down at the table with Phil Helmuth and company and a couple of uh, ex-Washington Redskins to try to make it to the World Series of Poker in Vegas this year. Uh, the, the dream died early, let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, you were like the uh, San Diego Padres in terms of making the World Series. You really didn't have a shot. No, I did not. Fan. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Oh, it's good stuff. Well, boxing makes its debut at the MGM National Harbor, um, a spectacular venue here, according to Vin. And it will host one of the very best fighters in all the world, um, probably the flagship of the Ukrainian invasion right now, April 8th, 2017, live on HBO from the MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. It is the return of WBO junior lightweight champion Vasily Lomachenko as he squares off against the tough and rugged Jason Sosa. What do you think about the fight, Steve? You know, is it a great fight? No. Is it the type of fight that Lomachenko wants? Probably not, but I think Sosa is solid enough, and I think one of the issues is there's not a lot of guys out there just openly willing to take on Lomachenko. I mean, listen, if if you said, hey, there's a casting call to fight Vasil Lomachenko, and it's not for $3 million, in today's marketplace, unfortunately, you wouldn't have a lot of hands that would willingly put their hands up and say, yeah, I'm the guy. Now, Sosa, to me, is a real fighter. I mean, here's a guy that a couple of years ago, I don't think anyone really knew him outside the club scene in the Philadelphia, Atlantic City, New Jersey area. He's promoted by Russell Peltz, who's certainly an old-school promoter. And to his credit, Jason Sosa, instead of acting like he – knows how to run a career, 
just decided to become a fighter. And I remember writing about this after the Fortuna fight, which really kind of got him on the map. In 2015, he fought, I believe, six times, stayed active, didn't worry so much about the pay, saw the trees through the forest. And if you look at Jason Sosa, now do I believe he's an elite 130-pounder? He's probably a shade outside of that. He's probably more top 10 than top 5. But look what he's done in his last three fights. He had a draw against Nicholas Walters, which, to be fair, most people thought Walters won. But it's, I thought in the second half of that fight, he fought very well. He got a little bit better. Then he beat Javier Fortuna last June in Beijing, China, for a version of the WBA title. Now, that's, that's a good victory in my view. Then he made a defense of that title against Steven Smith and Monte Carlo. So he's kind of crafting a career. Comes in with a pretty good amount of activity. But if you say to me, well, Steve, he has really no shot at beating Lomachenko, I would say agreed, but then I would retort, who does? Exactly. <laughs> who does, guys? Exactly. <laughs> who does? Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a fighter in boxing right Maybe, maybe when he steps up to 135, we might actually see him get mm-hmm. tested. But, but you're right. At, at, at 130 right now, he is the man. But I will say this about Sosa, and you just mentioned it. These last three fights that he's had leading into, I don't know if there's a boxer in boxing that's had a tougher three-fight stretch as far as always being matched tough. I mean, is Steven Smith and Javier Fortuna the greatest in the world at that division? No, but they're they're top-notch fighters. Fortuna's just dangerous enough. That, that is great work for, for a guy like Sosa to be getting. I don't expect him to even come close to winning this fight, but I do expect him to show up and fight. That's what we know we're going to get from Sosa. So you don't think we're going to get a uh, a no-mas performance like we did uh, when Nicholas Walters stepped in the ring with high tech? Well, I think that's always a possibility with, with <laughs> you know, Lomachenko. Nicholas Walters was defeated before he ever came into the ring, and I would note this once in a while. We all heard the rumors of Nicholas Walters flirting with other people, his financial demands, I don't want to say diva-ish quality, but he wasn't acting like a hard-nosed fighter. And I, and I've said this before on other shows, a fighter's mentality is like a knife. It has to be sharpened. It has to be honed. It has to be used. But if you dull that blade, it's almost worthless on the battlefield. It really is. Once that pilot light goes off, it's hard to turn it back on. And the way Nicholas Walters just capitulated he had a soft mentality coming in. Say what you want about Jason Sosa. He comes in acting like a fighter, and I think he's going to give an honest effort. The question then becomes, that let's say everything holds the form next weekend, who does Lomachenko go after next? Now, I actually like some of the names at 130, and maybe they finally make the rematch with Orlando Salido, but the second-best guy in that division, and this is just an assumption on my part, could be Gervonta Davis. Now, we know the politics of the sport. He's on the other side of the street. Uh, I think that would be, down the line, a very good matchup. But again, Lomachenko, his goal is to win four major world titles in separate weight classes before his 10th fight. Now, he's 7-1 and one now, and if he's 8-1, and one, you would have to think, as ambitious as he is, that perhaps he goes belt hunting once again, and maybe at 135 with guys like Terry Flanagan, Peter Petrov, obviously Mikey Garcia and Vasil Lomachenko, maybe that's where he really begins to find himself in terms of challenges. But I've said this for a while, guys. If most of the PBC belt holders were not at 126, 
I think Lomachenko would still be a featherweight to this day. Yeah, I guess his hands were tied. You know, it, it you know it goes hand in hand. You have the the fact that the guys that are available think that they should, like you said before, Steve, that they should you know get some kind of bounty or reward for stepping in the ring with a guy that's gonna end up slicing them up. But you know, why stick around? I guarantee you, if all the belts in the middleweight division were in the hands of the PBC, that Golovkin would have shot right up to 168. I know he's a small 160 pounder, but that does. Because, you know, these guys, this is what the, has, has been proven by the Asian and Eastern European fighters. You know, these guys have goals. And, and to be able to achieve the goals where success still means something and, and, you know, accolades and rivalry and competition still mean something, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, it's not the, you know, sort of status quo as to what's going on today in boxing. But guess what? This is what they fight for. So to be able to do that, you can't stand around and let your career sort of be put on layaway like great talents similar to Terrence Crawford yeah look we've seen Lomachenko here lately come out in interviews and say look I don't necessarily care if there's a belt on the line I'm looking for the toughest fight the biggest challenge that I can find and there's just name me another there's a handful of boxers out there that do that a handful yeah you know I do think the one fight that's left there at 130 that is realistic and makeable and it does have a storyline, is Salido. Now, listen, I am a huge Salido advocate, okay? But let's be honest. That first fight comes with a huge asterisk. They didn't make weight, didn't try to make weight. I think he held a sizable weight advantage the night of the fight. And Lomachenko found out something about professional boxing that as gifted as he was and being the pugilistic prodigy that he came into the sport uh, as where he had literally had the greatest amateur career in the history of boxing, still found out professional boxing and amateur boxing, there's a huge difference. And I still remember that fight. First half of that night, I believe it was in Texas, I don't think Lomachenko had ever been touched to the body in that fashion. And he reacted as if, like, wow, this is different. But to his credit, last half of the fight, he found himself, and if it was a 15-rounder, he may have stopped. Toledo. He shook him up at the very end, and you got the sense that, wow, this guy grew in 12 rounds against Toledo into a professional prize fighter. And Toledo has turned into really almost like this cult figure. He's got some popularity, and he's Mexican. And, and that's, Lomachenko's going to need dance partners that bring a little bit to the table promotionally because he by himself will not draw that many people. But I think. The word is out now about his artistry, about the type of skills that are very sublime that he brings. My understanding is, guys, I've been told this for about a month, the event next Saturday is a complete sellout, that if you want to get a ticket, you're going to have to pay a little bit more on the secondary market. In fact, they probably could have sold a few thousand more tickets opening up this new venue in Oxon Hill, which I'm being told is going to be a regular destination for boxing. And going back to Lomachenko, I believe that Top Rank will be taking him almost on this concert tour. Uh, I heard from someone at the company that he might be fighting in Chicago later this year, um, paired, paired alongside Michael Conlon. And it wouldn't surprise me if they pair him alongside Jose Ramirez out there in Fresno before coming back to Vegas. So Top Rank does have a real plan in terms of not only saying that, hey, he's the best fighter in the world, but also making him into an attraction, which is important, because if you want to get these guys to take the risk, 
you kind of have to do what Tom Lawson did with Gennady Golovkin. You have to provide a certain type of market value that then translates into enough of a reward to get opponents to go in the ring with him. Yeah, they they definitely definitely they got a couple years I think of working on creating that market where they'll be able to get get the opponents that they actually want the big fighters because let's be honest, you know, I I say this all the time on, on this podcast but you, these guys are they know they're going to lose. So they want to get paid to lose. It's period. It's the bottom line. I mean, if you're coming into a fight against Lomachenko and you you know you're completely overmatched, yeah, you give it all you got, but at the end of the day, you're not taking that fight unless your pockets are being stuffed. <laughs> yeah, that's what they call it: risk versus reward. And for a guy like Jason Sosa, who I would imagine maybe eighteen months to two years ago couldn't have been pocketing more than ten to fifteen thousand dollars a fight. Now Jeez. he probably made pretty good money by his standards for Fortuna. I'm assuming he made at least six figures for Stephen Smith. And for a headlining performance against Vasily Lomachenko on HBO, he's probably making a few hundred thousand dollars. So he's actually crafted a pretty nice living for himself. But you're right. When you hear other fighters, some of the stuff that they say that – and my point is this. I thought it was very interesting that Danny Jacobs, so many people stood up for him like they were their managers. Well, he's taking a huge risk. Guys, there's no risk clause in contracts. You're in professional boxing, and you basically get paid – off of what you are worth in relationship to that fight. Like, if there's a fight that's going to do $5 million pay-per-view dollars, you get paid by that. You don't get paid by the, well, you're a five-to-one underdog. That, that's not the real world. And, and I do believe to a certain degree some of that does exist with Lomachenko. I believe like Lomachenko, uh, like a Golovkin, he would love to unify the belts. The problem is if the belts are fractured along political and promotional alliances, Quite frankly, it probably is not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, look, Sosa, you've been hearing a lot of, I guess, uh, you know, similar comparisons with, uh, you know, with Joe Smith, uh, you know, the lunch pail attitude, the blue collar mentality. Well, part of the blue collar mentality is, is that you put in your time, you pay your dues, you take your licks early and through time and through progression, you earn yourself a living. And then in the end, you get rewarded with a pension. You know what I mean? And so to a lot of extent, that's exactly what Jason Sosa is doing. He's crafting a career with a blue-collar mentality. The problem with a lot of these PBC guys is they all think that they're graduating from Stanford and getting offered 150 k their first year at Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and in all fairness, right now in 2016 and now 2017, even if they wanted to fight, even if they wanted to take what we call in the industry a haircut, less money, I don't think they have the option of even doing that. Uh, I mean, listen, the two guys right now on that side of the street that I think have some momentum, and one of them won their last fight, that's Keith Thurman, and one of them did not get the decision. I think he lost, Danny Jacobs, but still fought pretty valiantly. They have momentum. I thought they came out of their last fights with heightened expectations, momentum, and a race stock. Okay, when are they going to fight again? Now, listen, they they didn't necessarily fight six months ago, so maybe it's premature. But can you guarantee me that they will each fight by, let's say, September? Nope. And if they do fight by September, 
Why won't they fight twice this year? I mean, these guys are each in their mid, what, 20s or late 20s. They're right in their physical prime. I mean, here you have Golovkin set trying to fight again in June, and he's the guy who won the fight, but he understands staying active is a good thing. If you go back, look at the PBC roster, and pick out their best, let's say, dozen guys, the guys really high on the depth chart, right? Look at how many times they're fighting. Outside of their prospects at the four, six, eight-round level, these guys simply don't have the opportunity to stay busy and also really to build momentum. So I guess all we can say to that is, thank Al. <laughs> what happened to the money? Seems to be running a little dry, doesn't it? <laughs> well, here's the other issue, and this is, again, people can say what they want, but... CBS, I think, will do one show a year that that's, that is financed by Showtime. That's been the case last year and then this past, uh, what was it, February, right? Mm-hmm. NBC, my understanding, is out. Spike is basically out of the boxing business. Fox, I think, will do some shows because they have a contract. ESPN, I really don't know. I My understanding is that they have eight or nine shows left, but if you go to the ESPN.com boxing schedule, it says April 14th, PBC on ESPN, and it lists no fights, no venue, no anything. <laughs> I mean, so and that's April 14th, guys. That's literally, what, two weeks away? So and you still have a lot of – now, listen, do they have a lot of fights scheduled? Yes, they do. Showtime has a very good 2017 going on. They resume April 22nd with Berto Porter, Charlo, and Hatley. And I'm sure there's a lot of undercard fighters there. Gary Russell, I think, will be fighting in late May. But you still have, in my estimation, off the top of my head, probably about 160 to 170 fighters who, if you ask them right now, when's your next fight? I don't think they'd be able to tell you. It's, it, it's, it's, it's wild, too, because these guys that are on Showtime, okay, like Birdo and Porter and these are some of the and 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 Gary Russell these are some of the most inactive PBC fighters these guys only fight once a year yeah so yeah. It, so so how much can you look forward to those upcoming fights if it's guys that make you feel like well, i guess i'll see this guy in another year uh, i mean uh, to me uh, like i keep being told or lectured to that i should want to enjoy Berto versus Porter well, maybe I should as a diehard boxing fan, but I know what comes next. Why do I want to watch something when I know what comes next? It's like recording the Super Bowl and then finding out the fucking result before you go home and watch the DVR. I know what happens. Why do I want to watch it? Yeah, and going back to Gary Russell, he was supposed to fight March 11th. Now, they're saying that there was an injury that took place, that kiboshed the show and backed it up. Yeah. My understanding is that ticket sales were so bad that they just they just postponed the show. How can you not sell in your own hometown? I mean, that's where the well, kid is they from. They overpriced it. That, that's what happened. They overpriced it. I, I think that they absolutely overestimated the popularity or the value of Gary Russell, who is from that region. So here's the ironic thing. So now, not only is Gary Russell not the first show in that brand-new venue, which will be used regularly from boxing, according to my sources, not only not the first show, 
not even the second show because they're having a show box on April 14th. It's going to be the third show, and I really don't know if people care about it. <laughs> uh, he gets no buzz in this area. None. None. Nobody talks about Gary Russell at all. People wonder where Lamont Peterson went, but they never ask about Gary Russell. No. <laughs> and that's another issue. Lamont Peterson has did not fight from October, I believe, 17th of 2015 till about, what, four or five weeks ago, where he beat David Avaneskin um, in Cincinnati, right? He looked good. Now, he looked good. He looked okay. I thought he got going after four rounds. I thought he took over that fight. I've always liked Lamont. He is now, I believe, the WBA interim welterweight champion, which I believe makes him, in essence, the mandatory for Keith Thurman. Now, that's a good stay-busy fight, if you want to call it that. I think that's a solid matchup. And if Keith Thurman wants to get his mojo back in terms of momentum and stay active, I think that's a fight that should be executed. But... And not that I know anything, but has the first step even been taken to make that fight a reality? No. You hear, you've heard Thurman lately say that he's looking to unify after the, the Spence-Brook fight or go after Pacquiao when that fight's right there to be made, both in the same stable. It should be, that should be a 30-minute negotiation, deal done, make the fight. And for whatever reason, they can't fucking seem to get it done. Then what you just said translates to we will see Keith Thurman in December. Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> yep. You'll, we're going to see him in November, December. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, too- I find it interesting that Keith Thurman wants Pacquiao now because isn't he the one that <laughs> he needs to have 10 million people watch his fight on CBS? <laughs> um, Pacquiao not fighting on CBS, Keith. <laughs> just want to let you know. I'd break it to you. I don't know. I think the, I think Jeff Horn in Australia is probably more lucrative than a fight against Keith Thurman in Vegas. You know, it's funny. If there is enough investment money over there, I'm sure it is. This is what the Pacquiao career has come down to, is trying to get the most paydays by leveraging certain governments or certain parts of the world into basically saying to them, hey, you get an event, you get a, the Pacquiao, you get a spot on the Pacquiao retirement tour, but the pay-per-view business for Manny Pacquiao has really become depressed compared to what it once was. You know, it's amazing with Manny Pacquiao. Uh, you're back to square one. I mean, back in January, Bob Aaron was talking about fighting Jeff Horn in Australia in April. And then the Dubai, the mirage in the desert in the Middle East came. <laughs> and the only ones that couldn't see that, hey, that, that the history of Dubai and Abu Dhabi has been they do great press releases. They promise a lot. They don't actually deliver the money for the events. Well, the only ones that couldn't figure that out are Mike Kahn's and Manny Pacquiao, which I thought was bizarre. Kahn's got a little big for his britches, didn't he? <laughs> you know, what I noticed, and I remember asking this to Bob, I said, is Mike Kahn's gone rogue? And he says, no, no, we're fine. We're all on the same team. They may have been on the same team. I don't think they're all pulling the rope in the same direction. The belief here is that they know this is Manny's last run, and they will try to extract every single dollar any way they can, given that the pay-per-view revenue has been significantly cut. So how do you do that? Well, you try to get site fees. And just like the old days with Muhammad Ali and other champions of the world, like Ray Robinson, you know, they'd go to various exotic locales across the world, anyone willing to put up some money for a fight. But 
from the time I've been doing this, guys, right around the turn of the century was when you started to hear about Dubai and Abu Dhabi. We have investors. We're going to put up money. It all started with, like, the Tyson-Lewis um, fight. Or people all over the world were offering money. And I'm like, this is not going to happen. But ironically, it landed in Memphis, of all places, which I guess is exotic. But <laughs> the Middle East has never, ever hosted a big boxing event. And in my opinion, in my lifetime, I don't like to say ever say never, but as they say, seeing is believing. Yeah, when I, when I go back to, you know, you think about the kind of falling out between Bob and, and Michael Kahn's, I I feel like there's an underlaying, just something there where Bob is just constantly asking them, uh, when are you going uh, to accept this Crawford fight? And they're just, they want no parts <laughs> of that fight, and Bob is getting very annoyed that they will not at least attempt to put his his new star over on their on his old star's way out the door. <laughs> I I don't think that Manny, Mike, or Freddie really want to fight Terrence Crawford. I think he's all wrong for them. In many respects, he resent, uh, represents a younger version of Floyd Mayweather. And and I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, if you are going to either pay, defend a certain title or try to make a lot of money, that comes with an expectation. If you want to just give up the WBO title and you want to fight C and D level guys and for the appropriate amount of money, that's well within your rights. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, give me X amount of dollars, which is a lot, all right, and then say, yeah, but I want to fight easy guys. Well, wait a minute. That's not fair to the fans. And it's not really fair to the people putting up the money, whether it's Bob Arum or not. Now, if, if, if Manny is saying, I will fight for a million dollars, well, bring your own opponents. But when you're starting to ask for multi-millions of dollars, there should be an expectation or a standard that, hey, you've got to have a certain level dance partner. And listen, I still think that if I'm Manny Pacquiao and Bob Arum, I still want to see an Adrian Broner fight or, or a guy on the other side of the street. The only problem is when guys like Adrian Broner, I forgot which website I'm on, and I, and I didn't click it, but I saw the headline where Broner says, well, Bob Aaron's got to make my money right. And I'm like, Adrian, listen, you're not exactly Mensa. I don't expect you ever to apply for Harvard or Stanford. But the man offered you $4 million last year, which is more than twice than I think he's ever made, the money was right. And I think now Bob has understood one thing. I can't trust Adrian Broner to show up. And paying me Pacquiao's opponent $4 million, that probably has ended several years ago. Broner had a shot. So did Danny Garcia. They bypassed it. They, they, for whatever reason, they were not allowed to play on that side of the street. And they turned down an opportunity for a career-high payday. So maybe this is what we're stuck with. The big question that I have, and I'll, I'll make some phone calls tomorrow, is if the Jeff Horn fight is consummated, I want to know, A, is it on HBO? Is it on pay-per-view? Will HBO distribute it? Just how will we, will be, will we be able to watch this here in the States? I'll tell you what's, what's funny about one, one, the other side of the argument, I should say, for the, the Keith Thurmans and Adrian Broners and Danny Garcias of the world – who have who were offered money to fight Manny Pacquiao, not Thurman, but the other two. 
it, it's like, hey, hey, guys, uh, you know, <laughs> you, your your value is nowhere near what you get paid already. In my eyes, they're all they've all been overpaid from the start by just a, a completely created market that didn't exist. Now you're getting offered double that. But the other side of the argument will tell you, well, well, Manny Pacquiao needs them. He he needs those guys. They don't need Manny Pacquiao. And it's like, wait a second here, guys. There's, is there any semblance of giving a shit about a fighter's legacy and who he fights anymore and and building a resume that 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 deserves respect? No, it just it fucking drives me insane, man. You know, listen. If these guys don't want to take that money, there there will be other fighters. And Jesse Vargas was one of them that, that will not only take the opportunity, they'll do it for a little less money. Do what you want. Jesse Vargas made a nice payday. When a WBO belt beats Adam Ali, parlayed that immediately into, I believe, at least a $2.5 million guarantee. No regrets. His $2.5 million, by any standard, is worth more than what Adrian Broner turned down. Because that was zero. <laughs> you, know, you know what they say about a bird in the hand beats two in the bush yeah. there you go <laughs> I don't know maybe Al was just actually doing his job for once as the advisor and just said listen man <laughs> listen AB look we're trying to you know build the Taj, uh, Taj Mahal out of a pile of shit here okay <laughs> you're gonna get your ass whooped if you face Manny <laughs> I don't care for I know I've been farming guys out I know I've been sending them out there and getting them paid but I'm telling you right now, I can still milk you in some in some setup fights where you only have to appear twice a year. You can burn off that nacho weight. You ain't fighting Manny. You'll get your ass whooped. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. When is Broner fighting again, by the way? I, mean, I, I don't want to keep too close a track of that side of the street. I just, you know, get, I get info when I, everyone else does. When and where is he fighting, Broner? When is when is anybody in the PBC fighting? For Christ's sake, Adonis Stevenson is now coming out and and complaining about not being able to get a fight. Now, I don't know how much you, oh, you, you yeah poor guy. yeah poor guy right. I don't know how much you take of that. I mean, he's been kind of the the poster child for what a PBC fighter is. Oh, he's been enabled more than anybody. Yeah, his entire isn't the last three years of his career have been. Up? What's that? Isn't he fighting Shawnee Monahan, and that fight's been backed up from its original date? Yeah, because they can't find the money to put it on. <laughs> and Yvonne Michelle's pissed because the PBC won't pull the trigger on it. Yeah, again, they did it to themselves. So I guess uh, I guess poor Adonis has to put off on buying another Lamborghini. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing, a, playing a tiny violin over here for him. I think that main event's uh, phone board is lighting up as we speak. Oh, um, hey, so what about that Sergey Kovalev fight now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this one's Adonis Stevenson. I, I think in many respects he was the poster child for the spoiled, pampered, Cayman client. But, and he's made some money, but I, I just... Again, I don't put too much in the legacy. That doesn't pay the bills. Fighters fight to make money. They have every right to make the best bill they want. But that career trajectory, the way it's gone since, what, 2014, 2015, I think it's been disastrous in a lot of ways. And it hasn't helped us if that's the template that other young fighters want to take. You know what I give credit to? Shakur Stevenson. Now, we all heard after the Olympics that Shakur Stevenson 
was going to go with Rock Nation, given the fact that his two co-managers have a relationship with RNS, Andre Ward and James Prince. But to their credit, and again, I don't know who really spearheaded this. I believe it's James Prince. That they said, wait a minute. We know what's going on at Rock Nation. We know the way they conduct their business. We know the way they develop their talent. Do we want a signing bonus, which will run out in about two years, or do we want a sustaining career and business? I've been told by very good sources that Shakur Stevenson and his camp decided, you know what? Let's go for a career. They took significantly less money off the top from the beginning from Bob Arum with his track record of developing young champions and young fighters into attractions. And that's where they're going to start April 22nd. That's long-term thinking. And, you know, there is that old phrase, all that glitters is not gold. And I wonder in the deepest recesses of Adonis Stevenson's mind, who's lived very well, very decadently since about 2015, if he himself again, won't admit it to us, will admit to himself, like, hmm, what price did I pay? That's the way he's going to be remembered. I mean, you know, you talk about trajectory, Steve, with Adonis Stevenson's kind of going in the opposite direction of this other guy. To get back to the HBO card, Alexander Usyk, okay, a guy as as, uh, revered, in the international amateur boxing scene, much in the same regard as Vasily Lomachenko, a guy that is considered to be a prodigy that is built for a sustained long-term career at cruiserweight and has aspirations to move to heavyweight very, very soon. Alexander Usyk is a guy that Vin and I, uh, you know, um, you know, as compared to our contemporaries, have focused a ton on. We've talked about this guy at length and have watched him very, very closely. And, and the big question to us was, and it, and it was based off of some things that Tom Loeffler, or I should say Gennady Golovkin, had said in the past saying, listen, Tom Loeffler works for me, okay? He is under the K2 license, but he works for me. So that kind of sent a little bit of nervousness towards guys like Vin and I who were uh, you know, hyping the rise of Alexander Usyk. Would he be under the you know, the European K2, the Klitschko brothers are going to manage his career, or are they going to hand him off to Tom Loeffler? And I think that the answers have been met because this guy is already selling out arenas in the Ukraine, a limited professional record, just like Vasily Lomachenko. Alexander Usyk makes his uh, um, Washington, D.C. debut um, on this card with Lomachenko. What are your thoughts about Alexander Usyk and his opponent in this fight? Well, I think it'll be a much better stylistic fit than Kabuchu Machunu, who was not only small, but he was also southpaw and very crafty. He's the type of guy that they say in the gym knows how to move around. And from the very beginning, he was in survival mode. And I remember being out there. That was December 17th at the forum before Hopkins Smith. And and the thing that stands out is 15 seconds. Into the fight, the Mexican fans were all booing. So this was not like Kovalev or Golovkin. I thought it was pretty interesting. And that got to Usyk a little bit, from my understanding. He didn't like the reaction. And I, I think this will be another guy that will understand the reality of the business. And his manager is Igus Kleinus, who very much, I, I think, is the type of manager we need. 
He says, guys, if you want to make money, two things, fight real guys, and number two, be entertaining. We're going to take challenges. And Michael Hunter, to me, is a much more conventional style, comes with a good American background in the amateur system, represented us, and I believe in the 2012 Olympics. So he's confident if inexperienced. And I think that's an issue, although Usyk himself was only on to his, what, 11th or 12th pro fight. But Michael Hunter will represent an easier target to hit because Machunu was so small, and given the fact he was also very crafty, he was a tough guy to really hone in on and get your crosshairs on. And he knew how to survive. Finally, he was kind of taken out of there through sheer size and the attrition. But Usyk, I don't think, made the type of impression that you wanted him to make. It wasn't like Golovkin bursting onto the scene against Proska or Vasil Lomachenko looking so athletic and almost ballet-like in his early performances. So it's very important that the style has to fit. As for Usyk's short-term and long-term plan, I think there's a couple things to mention here. He is a cruiserweight. Now, I like the cruiserweight division. It's always been kind of underrated or overlooked. But in America, I, I don't think there's much of a future unless HBO, which, and to their credit, they have done Usyk's last two fights, makes a commitment to the cruiserweight class and then starts to showcase guys like Murak Gassiev, who's another really good young cruiserweight. I, I don't know exactly where the long-term plan is for Usyk, but he, he does have the connections. He's with Tom Lofter. There's an association with Gennady Golovkin. But also keep this in mind that the people who ran this career promotionally as he began his journey were really, I think, a company called K2 Ukraine. And Tom told me a couple days ago that should everything go right next week, that they already have a summer fight lined up in Ukraine. So they have a plan, guys. Trust me, they are not going to just rely on HBO dates twice a year and beg. They have a plan. They're going to use the U.S. market when need be, and they will always have a foreign market back in Europe in that part of the world. So I can already see the mechanisms at work here. But, again, in the Cruiserweight division with guys like Mirak Gassiev and Marius Brightus, who won a fight yesterday against Marco Huck, it's more important, I think, in that division, because of its depth, that you get real significant fights. Because I, I can't see either network, HBO or Showtime, doing a group of fights that really don't mean much. Like, let's say in the welterweight division, Portoberto's fine. They're recognizable names. There's no real title at stake. But we've seen them before. There's a familiarity. Fans kind of like that. The casual viewers will gravitate towards those type of matchups. Those don't exist in the cruiserweight division, so you have to make every fight, at least the ones on HBO, as significant as they can be. And I do believe, guys, next week when we're out there, there is more pressure out of all three of the Ukrainian dream team, as Igor Klimas called them, that Usyk can't just win. I think he has to look good. He really does need style points. Yeah, and I, look, we've heard we heard Klimas come out with the statements this week. You you had mentioned a little bit of it before, where he said. Look, I'm setting up a stable of fighters that that understand the value of of coming to a fight and and entertaining the crowd that's there, not just boxing their way to a victory. And we kind of saw a little bit of that from Usyk in his last couple fights. I don't know if it's a, I don't want to say a lack of killer instinct, but he wasn't able to finish the deal. And for him to kind of take that next step in, into being a recognized fighter, 
he is going to need some big knockouts. And I, I think Michael Hunter's the, the, the right opponent. I think they picked the right guy, and I think he will get a stoppage in this fight. Yeah, style points matter. If you're a foreign fighter, like a Golovkin specifically, or a Kovalev, I think it was important for them to have a certain style. They could not put up a string of rather nondescript decision victories. They couldn't. That's what always gets me about the derision, that there's a certain group of fans that's very upset that these guys have found success. And they almost feel as though, hey, they are like the new great white hopes. And I completely disagree with that because, number one, they're not American. Number two, they are held to a higher standard. American fighters can say all day, well, we just box. This is boxing. We won, and we move on. Foreign fighters who don't have a natural base or natural constituency, they have to open your eyes. They have to excite you. They have to entertain. They have to grab you. They have to be telegenic. Kovalev and Golovkin, I think, were held to a higher standard, gave us entertaining nights. They became must-see TV. They fought more often. Bottom line is, American fighters and their fight fans, and they, they can bitch and moan all they want and point fingers. The problem I have with them is they don't pull the thumb. Because you ask them, what have you done for your own case? And you look at their box rack, and they're fighting once every 10 months, and you see a lot of W10, 10-round decisions where nothing happens. That's on you. It's not on the foreigners. It's not on these racist fans who have the temerity to buy tickets for fighters from foreign countries. How dare they? And, <laughs> yeah, how dare they? And Usyk should is held to the same standard as Kovalev and Golovkin. Yes, he's a world champion, but if he just slogs through another type of Machunu-like fight against Hunter, I'm not so sure his future is guaranteed on HBO. What would be the backlash? I mean, this is completely ridiculous and hypothetical. But what would be the backlash if Alexander Usyk sort of flipped the script and stole the promotional idea of uh, Mr. Mayweather? Uh, wh- what was he called? The Mexican assassin? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and, 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 and he just fought nothing but black Americans. And he won every single fight, and he called himself the, the, the brother slayer or something like that. <laughs> oh. I mean, what would be – I mean, you know, it's, it's a complete joke. I get it. You know what I mean? But, like, what would be the backlash of something like that happening? You know, I don't think – listen, Tom Waffle and them, they're very intelligent people, and I think they're sensitive to stuff like that. But is there a double standard as it relates to those type of things? Yes. And some of it's really not that important, but – No. But – it's interesting. He's lucky that in the cruiserweight division that a lot of it is European-based, so he may not even have that problem. But, you know, there. I think that Usyk, that card next week you watch, the usual suspects will be very, very critical of it because of the ethnic makeup of that card and who will win. That's the truth. It's not politically correct for me to say might ruffle some feathers, but I'll stand by that. Well, I, you already know that you're going to definitely get the when Lomachenko beats Sosa. Sosa, Sosa's a bum. That that victory meant nothing to yeah. anybody that questions what he is as a fighter going into the fight. Yeah, but that crowd's watching, you know, PBC on CBS twice a year, and those are the only two fights that they watch because <laughs> if they had any idea, if they'd been paying attention whatsoever, that most of the people that are lauding and sort of predicting 
you know, the future of Lomachenko right now in a positive light are also the same people that are lifting Jason's, Jason Sosa up. Yeah. Lomachenko's going to be very interesting because I think he has sublime skills. The question is, because his style is different than Kovalev and Golovkin, who are, who are just wrecking balls. I mean, what they do is very, very clear. It's black and white. They try to systematically break you down and then cave you in. And that's fun to watch. His style, I would say, is a little bit more intricate, perhaps a little more complicated. And his dominance is a little bit more of the subtle variety. Like, what he did to Nicholas Walters, it was like that old phrase, um, dissecting a butterfly and clipping its wings off. And he just did it very slowly. Where when Golovkin and Kovalev do that type of thing, it's just putting a sledgehammer over the butterfly. You know, it's very, there's nothing subtle about it. <laughs> the question remains, while he can sell out a 3,000-seat venue in Oxon Hill, Maryland, for an inaugural event, then the question becomes, how do you expand his horizons where he's then selling 5,000, 7,000, and eventually really big arenas where other fighters like me. Look, Golovkin has finally gotten to the point where outside of Canelo, everyone else from 54 to 60 looks at Golovkin as still a risk, let's be honest, but they are now willing to step in there because, like, ooh, wait a minute, that's still a lot of money, okay? Lomachenko represents that type of risk in a different way physically, but he does not necessarily provide that type of financial incentive. So that's what has to catch up for Lomachenko. But if I'm top rank, now that that show is what, April 8th. I I think you could stick in a a summer fight, late summer, early September, and then perhaps get him back into the ring by the end of the year. So I think last year, guys, he only fought twice. And, And for a guy like him, I think you would agree, that's not nearly enough. No, I don't think it is either. Um, it's not nearly enough for really any of these guys. I mean, uh, you know, look, to me, I'm looking at this thing as you're talking, Steve, and I'm like sitting here looking at my rundown, and I got Lomachenko listed in bigger font above Alexander Usyk. And then I start thinking to myself, I'm like, has Igus Klimas or Top Rank or K2, have they ever indicated that maybe this script gets flipped upside down, that the logical move is, if Joseph Parker comes out on top of Huey Fury, that they get the automatic mandatory if they move up in weight class. Maybe they take on a guy that is similar in size because if Usyk, if Usyk were to fill out to the heavyweight division, he would probably be probably 20 pounds lighter than Joseph Parker, but he would be the same size. They would look at each other eye to eye, and maybe this script gets flipped if Usyk's able to capture a heavyweight belt, and then maybe Usyk becomes the headliner and Lomachenko comes in support, much like Tyson and Chavez. I'm not saying it's to that scale, but the logical dollar value is not going to be with Lomachenko at that weight class if he can't transcend into Manny Pacquiao status. You know, that, that's an interesting plan. That, that really is. I get the sense that they're going to give this cruiserweight thing a nice run. They're going to try to at least unify one of the titles, depending on how readily available those fights really are. But you're right. As long as there's a small heavyweight, and I mean small in relative comparison to everyone else, and it's with the same sanctioning body, and the rules are basically within the sanctioning body that if you move up in weight, you get to become the number one contender. 
that's actually a very good plan. The, at the media luncheon, I think it was on Wednesday, um, everyone involved basically said, Usyk will stay at Cruiserweight for a while. Heavyweight is certainly in the plan. Every really good heavyweight since probably even before Evander Holyfield, they've all moved up and had at least a run in the game's glamour division. Because it's all said and done, listen, you can fight for belts, you can fight for legacy. This is prize fighting. The real money is at heavyweight. You know, also with this sort of combination, I know Igus Klimas is the common denominator between Usyk and Lomachenko with top rank and K2 being involved. But it seems, and I don't know if you've heard anything, and I don't mean to, you know, tangent once again, but it's something Vince and I have been curious about. Have you heard anything about these sort of photo ops and these conversations and rumors and the connection of Joseph Parker training in Vegas, that there may be more to the relationship of Joseph Parker and Bob Arum? Well, yeah, well, that's clear. What happened is, guys, before the Andy Ruiz fight with Parker in December, Bob Arum went over there, and I believe that fight was in New Zealand, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that fight was put on by Duco Events, D-U-C-O, who just happened to have Jeff Horn. And it was actually announced publicly, and I spoke to Bob about this. I wrote a little bit about it, that Joseph Parker, when he fights in America, the co-promoter will be top rank. And then Bob Arum, <laughs> sly old fox that he is, made a deal where he is basically essentially partners with Duco Events on other fighters that would maybe fight his guys or events across the world. And one of those fighters happens to be Jeff Horn. So it all, it all dovetails with one another. As, as soon as I think, you know, I start to question whether Bob's losing his fastball in the sport. I, you, you, you break that on us and it's like, God damn, that guy is slick as hell. Man. Well, well, then he threw a change up. I mean, I remember talking to Bob the Monday or Tuesday after that fight, which I believe was like December 10th. And, and he said, and this goes back to his plan about the global market of boxing, how it really excites him. He says, Steve, I see the way boxing is done in other countries. Television is a big factor, not pay-per-view all the time, It's not even premium cable. A lot of it is about being on quote-unquote free TV, and it's really built upon sponsorships. And I said, well, can you do that here? And he says, why not? It will take time. The most intriguing thing to me in the business of boxing that I'm looking forward to is something that Bob has talked to us about in the last month. How, what is his new grand plan for boxing moving forward? He's talking about this global plan, about breaking up the current template, and about moving forward with the business. I am very, very intrigued. Because look at the way Top Rank has signed prospects in this Olympic cycle. They're not thinking like an American promoter when you sign guys like Michael Conlon. They are thinking like an international promoter. So I want to see when does Bob formally announce this rollout because I think it's very interesting because the thing about boxing is it has a very unique place in television. It's not on major television anymore, at least where the networks pay for the product, right? Right. But – it, more than any other sport, I think boxing fans rely on the Internet. We get streams, legal and illegal. More pay-per-views are being put up on that platform. Uh, YouTube channels are more prevalent that focus in on the sport. Um, our show, Between the Ropes on Ring TV, 
basically a web program that I think might be put on an ESPN platform from what I understand. And, and if you look at all programming, sports or otherwise, there's a lot of cord cutting going on. I mean, more people now uh, of a certain age, I would say, like, let's say teenagers in that demographic, they don't watch TV. They watch tablets. They watch the laptop. They watch their phone. And boxing, I think, is now realizing there's a new way of watching content, premium or otherwise. I believe that's probably going to be part of the, the big plan uh, that Top Rank has. So that'll be interesting. And stuff like Facebook Live, it may have killed pay-per-view, but it also expands boxing's reach. So it's, it's a very interesting dichotomy that exists there. But Bob Arum has a plan. I don't think they're going out of business like some people had hoped. I, I think they probably have dug in their heels more than ever. I think certainly Golden Boy has. And it's very simple, guys. <laughs> you either adapt or you die. It's Darwinism. Yeah, and the sport is uh, behind the curve big time as far as adapting to the new market. I mean, it, it's it, the the age of a you know appointment TV watching where you where you sit down with the family at eight o'clock and watch the uh, sitcom, and uh, that's that market is just dying altogether. You you have to be offering your stuff on platforms that are the new age of watching TV or watching anything, which is yeah, I, I want to be able to. I have shit to do. Can I watch it on my phone while I'm out doing whatever? It's completely changed. And look, I hope, I, I think Bob gets it. And I think boxing slowly, slowly starting to pick up on it. But I, I will give Bob credit for this, is he recognizes that this, uh, this is a global sport and, you know, th- there's fans to be had from around the world. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you're not, I mean, just look at the, 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 any events in boxing outside of the United States, the crowds are always bigger. They're, they're more into the fight. It's just a completely different atmosphere than you get in fights in America. I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, this yeah. to me, this is spread out as much as you can across the globe. Look at the Lenaris-Anthony Crawler fight from last week. That fight here in America, it might fill three-fourths of the Stealth House Center, which would be about 6,000, 6,500 patrons. Mm-hmm. Over there in Manchester, there was a huge throng, and it was energetic. It was lively. It was a scene. So that's why I, I've, I've never once given credence to people. And if you well, boxing is dead or dying, it might be here. In the rest of the world, it's actually doing very, very well. In fact, take away soccer, it, it's still the major sport in a lot of places. And we go back to Golovkin. Listen, Gotti Golovkin, when you talk about the revenue stream, it's not just the pay-per-view. There's still the line gate, obviously, which was 3.7 at the Madison Square Garden. But his fights now are shown in over 100 countries in the world. And those are a lot of markets that pay pretty decent money, and that, that adds up. And just recently, in the last year or two, the major Korean network, I believe it's KBS in South Korea, they show his fights live. And you, you, look, you look at some of the statistics. Like, my understanding is that when Golovkin fights, his fights in Kazakhstan on television, which are held, I think, early in the morning, 75% of those homes are watching a Golovkin fight. And, in fact, Klitschko, the last several years of his championship run, when he would fight, his fights in Germany would do like 60%, 70% of the audience or something like that. And that that's more than the Super Bowl out here, guys. So, I, again, boxing is not what it was. I don't think it ever will be in this country. But globally, it certainly is not dead. 
Well, well, Lou told us he, it was dead on on Chris Mannix podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> well, maybe his business is dead, or he has to you know beg and plead for other dates from other promoters who do all the work. But everyone else that's trying to like create uh, a living or trying to create opportunities for their fighters and putting on big events. I don't hear those complaints from those people. I, I don't hear that from Todd DeBuff. I don't hear that from Bob Arum. I don't hear that from Eric Gomez. I don't hear that from Kathy Duva. I don't hear that from Tom Lawler. Oh, Lou's getting out of the business. He's going to go buy another baseball team because Good. much like the Wicked Witch of the West, his legs and, and, and his shoes just curled up under the house that was dropped on top of him. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't, you know, listen, Lou can run his business. He can have, certainly can have his opinions. But but I do find it interesting that there's a lot of other people that actually put much more into their own business than he does. Uh, they do not have a sugar daddy. They don't ever tell me the business is dead. Never. They just go to work and create stuff. And if you look at those people that I listed from Golden Boy, Top Rank, K2, Main Events, and other people, they create stars. That's their job is to create stars and promotions and big fights. I don't see them complaining. I find that interesting. Well, it's not about it's not about the fighters with Lou. We know that. It's all about Lou. He spent the he spent the first two minutes opening up in that podcast telling everybody how how amazing and important he is. And then he spent probably the next twenty minutes as soon as as soon as Chris Mannix brings up a question that would cause Lou to have to defend his point of view, like in a logical conversation. He becomes that loud, obnoxious food salesman in a bar who just tries to talk as loud as he can, and he knows he's a little bit taller than everybody in the room, and he'll just hulk over you screaming at the top of his lungs. I mean, this is the same guy who is frying Gennady Golovkin in this entire podcast leading up, but his biggest cash cow, Lou DiBella, that he's ever had in his career that he completely fucking mismanaged all the way to the very, very end in Sergio Martinez was deliberately avoiding Gennady Golovkin. No, no doubt. I mean, look, Sergio Martinez was a highly promotable guy. Now, do I think he was a tad overrated as this great pound-for-pound fighter? I do. How dare you, Steve? I think he was really elite. I think he was southpaw. (laughs) He was awkward. But Sergio Martinez, with the way he looked, and with the Spanish surname, and as the recognized middleweight champion, you're like, wow. That, That is straight from central casting, and all he became was a guy that headlined the small room at MSG, right, or played at Foxwoods or the underground city of Atlantic City. That, I mean, look, Gennady Golovkin is Kazakhstan. The old, and I've said this for years. Prior to Golovkin, the only other pop culture footprint that any Kazakh had ever had in America was Borat, a fictional character. <laughs> I mean, literally. No, I mean, you're right. About that, right. Unless you knew Vasily Sheroff. Right, which fine people do outside of boxing. But Lou took a very, very cookie-cutter, formulaic, big HBO for dates, television packaging approach. And bottom line is I still remember after the Matthew Macklin knockout, Lou, Lou, Lou comes over to me and says, I will never let that guy in with Sergio Martinez. Okay. <laughs> and, he says, and I'm just thinking, oh, okay. Listen, Sergio Martinez, to me, started the downfall of the middleweight division in one sense. He started after chasing Chavez, and then because he had his belt, but he wouldn't go after Dmitry Pirog, who also had his belt, right? 
started to use the age excuse, or as people started to say, well, he's old, and he deserves to cash out. Says who? If you're the middleweight champion of the world, you have the crown. Always. Whoever has the crown, their head should rest uneasy. Um, and then they started to make excuses about why we won't make that fight, this fight, or that fight. Then they cashed out with Cotto, and he got embarrassingly destroyed my career welterweight. Golovkin, to me, is doing it the right way. And because the problem is with Martinez, then he gave the title over to Cotto, who then used the size excuse, which may or may not have been legitimate. I admit he's a small middleweight, but you're still the middleweight champion of the world. Then he lost it to Canelo, who used the, uh, we don't F around, but here's my belt. <laughs> it all started with Martinez. I mean, Benny Briscoe has to be rolling over in his grave. But the one thing that Lou said that was hilarious to me was when he said, well, you take away the live gate from a Golovkin fight, oh, this last one, they didn't really didn't do that much money. Well, yeah, Lou, but here's the problem. That's like saying in 2001, if you took away Barry Bonds' home runs, he didn't have a great year. <laughs> I know. The, 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 live gate, the live gate counts. Guys, outside of Tom Brady's ability to throw the football, he's not a good quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that podcast, I mean, I already my opinion of Lou was formed years ago, but I mean, this just reaffirmed everything. The guy is just a complete horse's ass, in my opinion. Oh, he sounded like did he sounded like a a wet rat with uh, having hot acid dropped on his stomach, and he just squealing out his last few squeaks before he passes into oblivion. I mean, dude, he sounded like a dying pig, squealing. Well, good. Go buy the fucking Delaware River Dogs double-A team and see you later. <laughs> you know, I think Golovkin, listen, lose with the PBC, certainly is right. For him to say I'm not a PBC employee, I don't think it's completely correct. I think it's about the only way he subsists, which, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Other guys do it. Tom Brown, Yvonne Michelle, um, you know, the guy out of Chicago, Leon Mar- Margulies, which is fine. But, you know, those guys, they are quote-unquote called the promoters of their shows. I don't know how much promoting they really do, but they do get a fee from the PBC. But that's fine. I don't think there's any reason to be ashamed of it. But a lot of these fights that Lou does, moving forward, he does not have a stake in any of these fighters. So that, that's what I always found interesting about him talking about the futures of other fighters like Keith Thurman or Deontay Wilder. And I'm thinking to myself, Lou, everyone knows Al Heyman makes those decisions, not you. <laughs> uh, and Lou was sitting there trying to justify. He throws out the dumbest fucking excuse in the world as to why he wasn't present at the at the Thurman uh uh, Garcia fight, a fight that he was, uh, you know, supposed to be pr- promoting. He comes out and says, he goes, you know, boxing's so ugly and all these podcasters and YouTube guys that come for the pr- uh, free buffets have me so depressed about boxing. I couldn't even show up to the fight. <laughs> Did you really say that? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize he wasn't there. Um, I always thought promoters should be at their own events. But again, Lou's allowed to say what he wants. Everyone else is allowed to kind of say, wait a minute, let's kind of uh, investigate some of these comments that he's made. The funniest part of that that podcast to me, and I I like Chris, I've been on his radio show before, is when Chris said, why are the networks running from PBC? And Lou went volcanic. He went Mount St. Debella. Guys, that is a fact. The networks, I don't think, you can say they're not running from the PBC, 
They're not running to it either. Again, how many shows will CBS do a year? NBC will not be doing any more shows, from my understanding. Spike is no longer doing boxing. Fox, I don't know when their next show is. FS1 has a regular deal. And again, when you're off with me, go to the ESPN.com boxing schedule. And while Golden Boy is putting up fights for the next couple of weeks and months that have been announced for the ESPN platform for their new series, they just announced one this week for May 18th, tell me a PBC on ESPN show that has a listed fight on their own schedule. Well, I don't think it really matters, Steve, because Jose Cito Lopez is headlining the FS1 card, and um, that's all I'm dialed into right now. Don't forget Edner Cherry. Oh, and hey, at least Edner Cherry's a tough SOB. You know what? I'm not saying Jose Cito Lopez isn't, but there's a difference between Edner Cherry and Jose Cito Lopez. <laughs> Jose Cito yeah, Lopez Edner, is a shot Edner fighter. Edner Cherry <laughs> is fighting Omar Douglas. That's not a bad fight. You know, actually, guys, FS1 series on Tuesday has not been bad. Toe-to-toe. That Sunday night card which takes about 10, 10 minutes away from my house, the L.A. Live at Staples Center. Now, that date originally was supposed to be Rios Ortiz. Ooh. And I don't know what's going on. I still, I still think they're trying to hammer out that fight. I still think there's a very good chance it might happen. So the interesting news, yesterday I um, saw a tweet where it said the return of Miguel Cotto will be June 24th. Now, I talked about that slightly on the next round with Gabe Montoya last week. I didn't know the dance partners. And this guy listed um, Brandon Rios and some unknown Japanese guy. Now, according to people that I know within the Rios camp, it's not going to be Kodo. I think the focus is still Victor Ortiz. I have been told by other people that a fighter that was in line for that fight, instead of this unknown Japanese guy, was a known Japanese guy, Yoshihiro Kama guy. Mm. And so... That's why the Miguel Burkelt-Tacmur-Miura fight, which everyone thought was official for June 24th, did not have a date. Uh, if Cotto is indeed going to land on that day on HBO, it looks like the Miura Burkelt fight will take place in July. That becomes pretty interesting then because the dynamic, I mean, we all you know have expectations for this young strong Mexican stud in Burkelt. I mean, this dude is a beast. He's young in a division where guys are getting old. Tak Mura is exciting no matter what he does. And then you throw that in with Cotto, who should be, you know, even at this age that he's at now. I mean, he's a superior athlete to Kamigai. But then you got Kamigai, who's got arguably the world's hardest head. It actually becomes a an interesting evening. Now, will it be worth the $70 that Rock Nation's going to have to put this on? to foot the bill for Miguel Cotto's ridiculous contract, probably. But if this well, was, uh, if it was regular HBO, HBO, I like remember, it. Remember, the, the plan is right now, and again, this has not been signed off to by Mr. Ward. June 17th <laughs> Mr. is Kovalev Ward, we hope, or at least main events in Kovalev hopes, okay? June 24th, my understanding is it would be HBO. Um, regular HBO. And I, and I don't know if that makes it any better. Listen, I like Kamigai. He's a real soldier in there. But he's, he's a welterweight. And I don't know if he hits hard enough to really press Cotto, but he'll make it a fight. It'll be a fun fight. But, again, it's, it's just still kind of mystifying to me. Why does HBO have to keep uh, fortifying Rock Nation? I just I don't see any upside with that company. 
I don't know. Maybe they made a deal with the devil. <laughs> they can't get out Same of it. Thing. Same thing. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So uh, as we round our way back to this last fight on the card, I love this. This has been the most all over the place episode, but I think the fans are going to love this. Show. Oh, hell yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Uh, we got this light heavyweight of the Ukrainian trio, Alexander Gavozdich, who's squaring off against Uneski Gonzalez. Now, could Usyk throw fireworks against Michael Hunter, establish himself in the eyes of whoever's tuning into the fight? Lomachenko, fireworks, blah, blah, blah. I think that those, sites are, uh, those two fights are a little bit one-sided. I think if there's a fight and a guy that I've seen that has proved to be vulnerable, at least he did against the awkward Isaac Chalemba, is... Alexander Gavostich, and I tell you what, Uneski Gonzalez, this is a tough fight for him. If he wins this fight, Gavostich then becomes in line, I believe, and this is what I've read, for a WBC eliminator against Joe Smith. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot at stake here. I love yeah, it. I know that Joe DeGuardia is hoping that Uneski Gonzalez, who also is represented by him at Star Boxing, throws a monkey wrench into those plans. I mean, look at Gosick, another guy. He only has 12 fights, but they're moving him quick. I mean, they're not going to all move at the Lomachenko pace, which is like the fastest lane of the Autobahn in Germany, but they're moving quick. They believe they have a guy. And, you know, look, for a guy in his 12th fight to face Chalemba, who I believe is a legitimate contender who went solid rounds with Kovalev last year, and to actually stop him, that's a pretty good win. Uh, you know, dominated Tommy Carpenter, and then he blew out Najib Mohammedi, who I fought for a title the year before. It's a relatively quick development that they are partaking in, and we're going to see a lot, because I think Yuneski Gonzalez is a good fighter. I thought he got jobbed against John Pascal, and he had a very good fight uh, against uh, uh, Slava Shabransky who at that point was undefeated and really rolling. And then he was taken apart, of course, by Sullivan Barrera. But that would be very interesting, guys, that let's say Gavozic beats Uneski Gonzalez. The WBC then makes the title eliminator between him and Joe Smith. I really wonder, would star boxing go through with it? Because as much as I like Joe Smith, and I'm, I'm very friendly with Joe DeGuardia, I get the sense they overplayed their hands after the Hopkins fight. You don't go from a Hopkins victory and then parlay that into a Gavosa fight. That just doesn't make sense from a risk versus reward perspective. Why did it fall apart with, with Joe Smith and Adonis Stevenson then? Why did he go to Shawnee Monahan? Well, there's two separate stories. Uh, you know, Yvonne you know, Michelle tells me that Joe DeGuardi acted like he had the big draw that because the fight was going to be at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island where Joe Smith resides, they thought they had the A-side. And Von Michelle basically said, now, wait a minute. We, we were the ones ringing the bell. We're the ones with the profile. And we were probably the ones bringing the television because of their association with Al Heyman and the PBC. I spoke to Joe DeGuardia last week, and he vehemently denied that they overplayed their hand. So, you know, again, is it true somewhere in the middle? It usually is. But the reality is, regardless of who you believe or what is to be uh, taken seriously, we are now into the first week of April, and Joe Smith, who I thought was a very hot fighter, even got fighter of the year uh, consideration, 
after beating Bernard Hopkins does not have a fight. I I just kind of find that odd, don't you? Yeah, I mean, especially a guy that, you know, you don't know how long you have with this guy. I mean, yes, we've seen him, you know, he, he knocked Bernard Hopkins out of the ring and I'm sorry. Yes, I give him respect for beating Bernard Hopkins, but let's be honest. At the end of the day, that really doesn't mean a whole lot. You beat a 51-year-old fighter. Uh, you know, you gotta. You would expect that they would have something at least lined up right away. And I get, you know, I get the the both sides of the boat there with the with the Stevenson shit. You always the truth in boxing, unfortunately, always lies in the middle because you you hear the opposite shit from both sides, and it's like, look, I don't I don't know who to fucking believe here. I'm going to decipher for myself based on, you know, what I know about the people involved in the situation. I, I really find it hard to believe that they they don't have anything, anything lined up for him at all right now. What's that old saying? You got to strike while the iron is hot. I know this. Iron's not hot anymore. And, no. and I've said this about the world of boxing, that most fighters, the, 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 the ecosystem of boxing, the, the universe is like a train station. We've all been in a train station. And most fighters, most, are like a passenger. In other words, if you don't get on that train and it takes off, you're left. And guys like Canelo and Pacquiao and Floyd, they're like the trains. They kind of come and go when they want, and people will wait around for them or rush to get to them. And when they take off, that's their choice. Joe Smith, unfortunately, is still a passenger. He's not a train. And that. These trains have all taken off, and honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll speak to Joe DeGuardia more later this week as I get to the to the venue, and I'll talk to him probably after the fight. I know he is hoping like hell that, number one, Uneski Gonzalez, who was his client, wins that fight, not just for Uneski Gonzalez's sake, probably also for Joe Smith. Oh, yeah, and, and, and DeGuardia's pockets, too, because he's all over that whole fight. <laughs> yeah, so, but again... Joe Smith, and I don't know if this is his fault or not, uh, he was left at the train station for the time being. I think that the advantage here for Gavozic in this fight has to be much in the same sense that, you know, uh, Vyacheslav Shabransky had against Gonzalez. Gonzalez can have success against a wild card, a guy without with unsustained rhythm, a guy who throws off tempo like Jean Pascal, because Uneski wants to kind of come forward and more a little bit sloppier version of Badu Jack is the way I see him. Very aggressive, very active. He likes to stay active. He wants to control the pace, but he's also teed up for a guy like Shabransky who likes to bring his offense down the middle. And Alexander Gavozdich to me is a, a little bit more of an upright version, a little bit more within himself than Shea, you know, than say Shabransky. Shabransky just go buck wild sometimes. So I do like this matchup on paper but I, he better not come to this fight thinking just because his boys Loma and Usyk are going to win their fights easily that his is going to come easy too. There's no doubt that he has the most competitive fight, at least on paper. One thing that's very noticeable about Gavosic is that he's very straight, especially with that right hand. He landed one that was right on the button against Mohamedy. And listen, Mohamedy is what he is. But to get him out of there, I say this a lot. It's not about how you win, or it's not if you win, it's how you win. And even against Chalemba, Chalemba's a slick guy. I mean, listen, Chalemba is a very, very competent professional fighter. I mean, you could have made an argument that he beat Elider Alvarez. 
about a year and a half ago in a very close fight. That was, I think, for an eliminator. Went round with Sergey Kovalev, where a lot of people thought Kovalev got exposed to a certain degree, which I didn't agree with. So when you're beating guys that early, it says a lot. And, and I'll say this. I haven't been to the gym yet since Igus Climates bought it, uh, the old Robert Garcia Boxing Academy in Oxnard. There is a very serious atmosphere with Climus. But when you sign with Climus, you're not going on an American vacation. You are there to make money and to concentrate on your career. And they run a very, very tight ship. I, I, I would be surprised if you ever see an Aegis Climus fighter overlook a fight or be complacent. Because I, I joke with Aegis all the time. All of his plane tickets that he buys for his young prospective fighters that he signs – they're all two-way tickets. She can bring you here. She can also send you back. I brought you in this. I brought you in this world, boy. I take you out. I <laughs> <laughs> take you out, right? Oh, that's great. All right. So to round out the card, we got Mike. Yes, indeed. Reed joins the party. A guy I'd like to see get a little bit more shine. He's been impressive most of the times that I've seen him. Jesse Hart, and of course. Uh, Vin's personal favorite, the Mean Machine himself, Agidius Kavalowski. I cannot wait to oh, uh, to be live in person for the Mean Machine. This is a pivotal year. I've been high on Kavalowskis. His last fight, he struggled a little bit against Cameron Crail, who was a very, very tough guy, whose record belied the type of skill that he had. Who I mean, Crail ended up beating an undefeated prospect from the TMT stable. Um, who was it? Um, uh, Dennis um, Ilbe. Yeah. So. Listen, I also heard that he was really not in great shape because he just had gone through a pregnancy with his wife and came into camp late. Kovalishkis is one of those fighters that you don't willingly fight him. You have to fight him when you have to as a mandatory. So they're going to try to obviously get into some rankings. I believe with guys like him, you have to go through the process of elimination bouts, paying sanctioning fees. But I like Kovalishkis. He's your typical hard-nosed fighter from that part of the world who is dedicated, serious, and very, very strong physically. And my understanding is from Ryan Scalia looking at the schedule for next week, he does have a relatively tough fight on his hands. Look, I I just I feel bad for him because I feel like when it, when it boils down to it and he gets to the point where he's ready to get a world title shot, I mean, he is going to have a trouble finding a dance part. I don't see any American welterweights, to me, look at him and go, eh, we don't need that in our lives. We can go another right. route. No, oh, it's the most diva division in boxing. <laughs> I mean, even the guys that are that are ranked between 10 and 15 think that they're the A-side. <laughs> you know what, though? But, guys, this is why you need the sanctioning bodies. Yeah. Because without them, who's going to enforce it? These belts still mean a lot. Trust me. And, look, Prentice Brewer is what he is, but I was there, I think it was about, about 14, 15 months ago. Prentice Brewer is a guy that's confident. He's pretty athletic, and he trained hard. And Kovalishkis, I thought, was going to get a real test out there at the Sportsman's Lodge. He got blown out of there in two rounds. I mean, pretty easily, too. And I was like, wow. I was like, wow. This, this, and you, again, it's not if you win, it's how you win. Not a lot of guys have done that to Prentice Brewer, you know? Steve, let me ask you about one more fight before we let you go. And and, and this is kind of a two-pronged question. We'll We'll – uh, you know, the latter being what you think about the fight. But I was kind of curious about Terry Flanagan versus Peter Petrov, not just because of the in-the-ring 
the fact that there's a you know a, a title on the line and Petrov has maneuvered himself um, in earning a title shot against Flanagan. But this is going to be broadcast um, the same day as Lomachenko versus Sosa. But this is going to be on BN Sports from Manchester, England. Now, is this on BN because they're tying it together with the Alfredo and Golo fight? No. Well, okay. There's a late development. Artie Palulo, a band of promotions, believed that they had a deal. It came to my attention yesterday through a random guy on Twitter saying, Steve, what's going on with BN? They just told me that they are not televising the fight. And the guy showed me an email that he had gotten from them. And I contacted Matt Rowland, who is the right-hand man of Palulo. And I DM'd him, and I'm very close with Matt. And I said, Matt, is this true? And he said, yes. But we are working on another stateside television outlet for Petrov Flanagan. Oh, no. So, as they say, more details to come. It's a buzzkill. I really like this fight, and I'm going to be in D.C., but I'd much rather be able to have the option of watching it at home in DVR than having to look for a stream. Jeez, man. Now, here comes AWE. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which nobody has. Wealth. You don't have any wealth. I have, I have wealth in my life. <laughs> I don't know what. I, hey, I don't. Or, know. Don't forget cloud TV. Cloud TV. Yeah, I actually watched the Corolla Linares fight, and cloud TV is not bad, actually, guys. Uh, I, I subscribe to it every month for boxing. They they botched the boxing every month. It's not a bad service. They botched their first stream. I, th- I can't remember what the fight was, but their stream oh, was, it was horrible. A fight. Oh, it's terrible. I yeah. Heard. Yeah, oh, was it wasn't it Kowalski against Usyk? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it yep, was. Yep, you're right. Oh man, I was I was sitting there shaking the TV. I was trying to hook up my Google Chromecast. <laughs> you're yelling at me to turn was, the Wi-Fi off on my phone. You're like, turn your Wi-Fi off." <laughs> it's gotten, guys. It's gotten much better. To, the, to their credit, they had a shaky lift off, but now that they're in orbit, it, 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 it's been smooth sailing for the most part. Oh, I thought they were just robbing my twelve dollars a month. I forgot to cancel the subscription. <laughs> Turns out it's been a uh, quality boxing after all. <laughs> oh, uh, so okay, Steve. I I, I know you love uh, Peter Petrov's work ethic. Flanagan is a, is sort of an unknown quantity outside of the United Kingdom, even to guys like Vin and I that that follow the UK scene very very closely. But there's a huge size discrepancy in this fight. What if you were the odds maker right now in Vegas? What odds would you put on Peter Petrov winning this fight? Guys, I was stunned when someone on Twitter told me last week after I visited Petrov after his last smart session out there in Pico Rivera. He's 9-1, to one, and I'm like, wow. Whoa. I mean, again, you bet on value. If I'm a betting man, which I'm not, I'm hitting that odd all day. Because, you know, Flanagan's tall, he's lanky, and he's southpaw. Those are things that you don't necessarily run to. But uh, let's face it, this is not Roberto Duran here. This is not Pernell Whitaker. I think Petrov's going to pressure him. He has no other choice. He has to close the gap. He's got to get his hands moving. Petrov is in great shape. And if you look at Petrov, post Madonna, and I think that fight was at 140. He's been a very good lightweight. He, he, I thought he looked very good throughout Boxino, came up with some really solid victories, absolutely dominated Michael Perez, who's not a bad fighter. I called that fight for Ring TV. And I think he's ready. And he's one of those fighters, he needs a belt. And I think he realizes at this age, there's not going to be five more opportunities for him. So if I was an odds maker, Looking at it as rationally as I could, I would make Flanagan a favorite. I wouldn't make him a nine to one favorite, but if someone said, "Okay, how about three to one, four to one?" 
You know what? I, I would say that's more appropriate than nine to one. Petrov is two things. He's hard nosed and he is well conditioned. And he doesn't have great power, but he has the ability to at least make you respect what he does with his two fists. I think it's a real fight, but I do think the absolute key for Petrov, he has to pressure from the beginning, and he has to close that gap. He cannot give away rounds because he is fighting on the road. I think one thing that scares me about those 9-1 to odds is the fact that Petrov's going in Flanagan's backyard. And if, yeah. if you're here, just the whispers of it in the U.K. of Flanagan Kralla. So there's right. there's money on the table here. I, I think Petrov's going to have to do a little bit extra to win this fight. Dude, I loved. No, he is. I love Frank Warren's little uh, bit that that he wrote on BoxingScene.com, where he's basically coming out and saying, "Anthony Kralla, you ain't worth a million dollars, bud." I thought that was fucking hilarious, <laughs> and, and and it's yeah. true, and it's true Listen. because I mean, does Kralla want to take another matter. loss in a row? Right. I mean, look, Kralla, if he has a belt. Is probably worth two million. Without the belt, he ain't worth a million. But that, I mean, because if you're Flanagan, you know, the fight's basically the same. But it's huge for a guy like him to be a unified champion. It would be. It would help. Because and, and if he beats Corolla and has two belts, guess what? He gets paid more if he's ever paired with Linares or Mikey Garcia. Well, now Garcia's got a beeline for Terry Flanagan. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he wants the winner of this yeah, fight bad. Listen, I, I love Mikey Garcia. I just find it highly ironic that every fighter he really wants is basically with top rank. And I'm like, wasn't he just with them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't get it. And, and for him to think, or anyone to think, that all of a sudden top rank now would be walking him back with open arms for one fight deal at a time, someone needs to tell him the reality of the business. Because that's certainly is not the case. He seems like a smart guy. He seems like an intelligent guy. You would think he'd be smart enough to know, yeah, why, why did I get away from top rank? He is. You know, he is, but he's also very prideful. Yeah. But, you know, he might be intelligent in many other ways, but there's a reality to the boxing business and the way it's set up. And I know for a fact that now that him and his brother, and his, they're all reaching out to, like, different parties and saying, hey, with top rank, you know, whether it's Todd the Buff or Bob Arum, trying to gauge their interest. Listen, if Mikey Garcia really wants fights with either Lomachenko at Golden Boy or the fighters at top rank, he is going to have to sign a multi-fight deal. They're not doing one-offs. I'm sorry. You would do it for Ray Leonard when he had Mike Trainer as his attorney. He'd go fight by fight. That's Ray Leonard. Mikey Garcia, in terms of economic value, <laughs> he ain't Ray Leonard. No. Yeah, and old uh, Tricky Dick didn't have as much swing as he used to have, does he? <laughs> right, and I really believe this, guys, and knowing the personal and professional history of Richard Schaefer, I believe that if Schaefer signs Mikey Garcia, unfortunately, that would automatically disqualify Garcia from certain fights, and you can guess which ones. He'd have to go all the way up to 147 to get a fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speak, <laughs> speaking of uh, Dick Dick Schaefer, we saw uh, Mikkel Kessler makes his return this week. Is he the uh, the first entry into the, the World Series of Boxing Tournament? The Super Duper Six. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if that's the biggest name they have, that tournament is doomed. <laughs> hey, what if they lure the Cobra out of his den? <laughs> 
You get a little frotch versus, uh, oh, man, dude. I hope neither of these I mean, guys become retired. Is, is Tesla no longer blind in that one eye like he was claiming? <laughs> yeah, everybody just kind of forgets about that, huh? Yeah. Nobody uh, asks that question about Margarito, though, do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, but man. you're right. Now, now they only have about, what, 50-some-odd more spots to fill in that tournament. So good luck with that. <laughs> but but isn't it seems to me Kessler is outside of that imaginary realm of weight classes that they had uh, right. apparently yeah. leaked. So again, I don't, I don't know who is a fighter with real value, whether it's a champion or not, or just a belt holder. Yeah, it's like who I, in, who is going to join that tournament? Well, you know? I mean. <laughs> If they had the uh, $50 million uh, stacked on the center of the poker table like they do in the World Series of Poker, and you could see the cash sitting right in front of you, I'm sure everybody would raise their hand. But I'm sure with uh, you know the, the powers combined of Sauerland and Dick Schaefer, they're like, yeah, whatever. And, 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 and you know what, Steve? I had brought this up on last week's podcast with Vin. So, okay, they've announced this thing. All right. Well, they could go along with every other boxing promoter that has hasn't followed through with something and come out looking like assholes. But what if they really did get the money but couldn't get anybody to sign up for this thing and then they ended up getting a bunch of guys like, you know, the uh, Tony Harrisons and the Willie Nelsons of the world. You, are you trying to tell me that Dick Schaefer and Cal and and and, and Cal uh, Sauerland are going to have a press conference handing Willie Nelson the winner of the World Super Duper Super 6 quintuple of boxing a 50 million dollar check? <laughs> I mean, don't they have that to get a certain be, quality of fighter? Listen, we're in Final Four weekend, but that tournament, if, if your scenario comes to fruition, that would be less than the NIT. <laughs> Tournaments are only as good as the fighters in them. Bottom line. I guess that's why they all hang their hats on the Super Six. Andre Ward's still riding that thing, man. <laughs> Well, that was almost six years ago, though. <laughs> I mean, jeez. I can't even remember six days ago. All right, Steve. All right, man. Hey, appreciate you sticking around. It's been an hour and a half on the air with us here at uh, the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast. We appreciate you stopping by again, man. Absolutely, and I'll see you guys next week. Absolutely, man. All right, Steve. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Steve. Co-host of the three knockdown rule with Mario Lopez, the next round with Gabe Montoya, and uh, UCN Live's 10 count, and now... Uh, co-hosting with Doug Fisher, the editor of Ring Magazine. Ring Magazine presents Between the Ropes. Big up to Steve Kim. Follow him on Twitter at SteveUCNLive. Which looks like it might end up on uh, ESPN after all, huh? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yep. I guess I'll be uh, doing ringside duty for that now. <laughs> <laughs> Interviewing the trainers in the corner. Steve hits us up. He's like, hey, guys, um, you know, <clears throat> We uh, had some guys drop out here. You know, Teddy couldn't make it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> we need you to interview fighters in the ring. Like, hey, uh, so uh, how's your fighter doing right now? Hey, aren't you that fucking white schmuck who hosts with that other white redneck who always calls us a bum? <laughs> uh, yeah, we might run into a little bit of that. Oh, man. What <laughs> dreams may come. What <laughs> dreams may come, Ben. All right, big up to Steve Kim for uh, for joining us. I guess we kind of covered everything. That was probably the most roundabout, action-packed, uh, filled episode I think we've uh, had here on the show, Vin. Hey, to me, the, the best episodes are when the conversation just goes where it goes, brother. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, well, you want to just close the show here on episode 156? Wind this bitch down. It's going to be two weeks till we get back, Vin. I know. 
I know. I'm heading to the hospital in two days to uh, welcome my firstborn child to the world. So Vin will be at the fight. I'll be home with the new baby. And I guess we'll <laughs> – what's the next big show, Vin? April 22 preview? Yeah, that's about it. Yep. Got us a little Oscar Valdez, Miguel Mariaga, and a little bit of Berto and Porter. Oh, God. Can't wait for that one. I mean, <laughs> you just took the fucking air out of the room there. <laughs> Stealing thunder, Vin. That's what I do. That, that's what you do. <laughs> All the thunder. <laughs> oh, man. What a show, my Get, friend. Getting loopy here at the end. It is. Just my anxiety. I'm, this is the way I respond to the fact that I'm becoming a father here in a few days. Yeah. Your world is going to be a change in, my friend. And meanwhile, your world continues on at Lomachenko versus Sosa. <laughs> Living the, live the uh, fucking fast lane, brother. One weekend, World Series of Poker qualifier. Next weekend, Lomachenko Usyk. Big time, baby. Big time, Vinny. The National Harbor MGM was definitely built for you, Vin. I think so. <laughs> if you build it, Vince will come. <laughs> I will give you my money. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to episode 156 of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast. Be sure to drop by theboxingrant.com today and subscribe to the Tale of the Tape and the Boxing Rant at iTunes, Google Play, and, of course, Spreaker. Subscribe to the Boxing Rant YouTube channel today and follow us on Twitter at VinceCummings81 and at Kenny Keith Jr. So we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks for listening to the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast on theboxingrant.com. Muchas gracias, everybody.